I'm Barbara Bray. Welcome to my Rethinking Learning podcast, where I have conversations with inspirational educators, thought leaders, and change agents. I have someone on today who I'm not only just so in awe of, I love her. It's Lindsay Portney. Portnoy. Portnoy. (laughs) Sorry, I already said it wrong. I love you, Lindsay. Thank you so much for being here. Oh my goodness, Barbara. Thank you so much for having me. I feel like this has been a long time coming and I'm really honored and and grateful for this invitation. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Well, we're really good friends too. So what's really nice is that, you know, it's like, I think I've known you forever. Don't you feel like that? Like we've been friends for so long that I do. It's so funny because we've only known each other for what, like a year now, maybe max a year. But I feel like I've known you 20 years. (laughs) I think it's a little longer. I know when we got together, it's like, oh my gosh, we're good friends. So (laughs) I get to boast about you. I'm going to just introduce you to everybody. It's Dr. Lindsay Portnoy. She's a cognitive scientist and educator and author who is working to translate the science of learning into powerful and intentionally crafted experiences tailored to each unique learning community and every child. I know you do this. Thank you, Barbara. I just love this. And I'm going to say more about you because, in fact, I don't even know if I could, I could go on and on and on, but we're going to be talking. But here's a little bit more. Lindsay writes and researches about learning science in articles and peer-reviewed journals to widely read publications such as EdSearch, Getting Smart, ASCD, and Digital Culturist, and more. I keep finding you everywhere, medium, all of those places. She has a new book coming out. Is it right? Called Design to Learn? It's called Design to Learn, Using Design Thinking to Bring Passion and Purpose to the Classroom. You see, we are kindred spirits, my friend. Oh, <laughs> and that's coming out pretty soon, right? Yes, yes. Um, I, when is it coming out? It should be available in November. Um, I had submitted it to ASCD last fall, and they had it supposed to be in queue, um, well, the following May. But I got it in a little bit early, so they're going to be able to release it early. I'm very excited. And it's a member book, so everyone who is a member of ASCD, 50,000 educators across the country are going to be able to read the book. Oh, my gosh. I better become a member again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Are you kidding? I'm thrilled to send you a copy. Oh, I know. You're just so wonderful. Well, welcome, Lindsay. It sounds like we're just going to have one of these fun conversations. So I'm, I'm really excited. I always tell everyone, I want people to get to really know you. What was it like where you grew up and when you were growing up? Wow. Well, I, grew, I live now in New York, but I grew up in Michigan. And it was a really beautiful place to grow up. I mean, I grew up, there were lakes all over the place and we were, you know, we grew up in a time when kids were riding their bikes around the neighborhood and we came home from school every day. And, you know, I would, I would let my, myself and my sister in and we'd hop on our bikes and we'd ride down the block and pick up all of our friends. And I have memories of, of riding up and down the streets singing with all of my friends um, growing up. So it was nice. I mean, it, not everything was was peaches, but but it was a it was a really nice place to grow up, and it was a really nice time to grow up as well. Oh, that sounds beautiful, especially the falls there. I just you know all the beautiful uh, trees yeah. and everything. Oh my goodness, we have a cider mill there that is to die for. They have the most incredible donuts. If you oh. ever get to Michigan, um, there's a cider mill in Detroit that's incredible. 
<laughs> That's fun. So what was it like for you as a student there? Um, well, I don't know. So my parents were divorced when I was really little. And I know, obviously, my parents loved us a lot, but but we struggled in school. I struggled in school early on, and I didn't really see myself as such a... Um, such a very studious person. And so I sort of went through school. I think maybe how most folks maybe go through school. I wasn't always a great student, but I wasn't a horrible student. Um, And then something really awesome happened in high school. And I I feel like it was a fluke. Um, I was placed in an honors English class my freshman year of high school. And I thought, surely, surely this is a mistake. And then all of a sudden I was placed in an honors bio class. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, this is definitely a mistake. And as I'm going through the semester and I'm sort of afraid to, to you know, say anything to anyone. And anyway, my teacher, Miss Murphy, was, was the English teacher. And, you know, we went through the semester. It was an amazing semester. I learned so much. I found a love of, of writing. This is when I really saw myself as maybe even being a writer. And then all of a sudden in biology, I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, I could maybe do science. Like, really, I could, I, I could be a student. Like, this is, this is okay. I could maybe be successful in this. Um, and so in high school really was like a turning point for me. Um, I had this incredible choir teacher, Mr. Cleveland, who, who treated all of us like we were his kids. And, you know, he was firm but really, really kind with us and, and wanted us to do well. I, I mean, I had all of these incredible teachers who, who finally helped me see that I could, I could do anything. I could be anything. And, and it didn't matter what the content was, that they were there to support me in learning. So I think that's where I became a student. Wow. Look how long it took. It's, but it is amazing when you have someone who believes in you. I think every child, if we could you know, be that teacher there for them, because I think a lot of kids feel the way you did. And I know I did. It really means a lot to have someone say, wow, you're good at this, or I really like what you're doing here. It's just nice to get that kind of feedback. Well, I mean, also that like you, you could do whatever you'd like to do, that you're limited only by your interest. And this whole idea of, of labeling kids and, and the standardization of, of, oh, this is your score or this is what class you're in. I mean, how ridiculous that even being in an honors class was the thing that, that made me feel like I was capable of, of, of being something like that's so silly. It should really be driven by interest. And, you know, we focus so much on the cognitive and, and not enough on, on where people are motivated and, and interested and excited and engaged in learning. Wow. We're going to talk more about that in a little bit. Because that's kind of why I wanted you on, <laughs> because you, you have so much to share. Now, um, when did you move to New York? So I graduated from undergrad, and I packed up a U-Haul that night, and the next morning I drove to New York City. I will never forget, um, I think it was on 95, there was there's this one place where you're sort of driving up 95, and all of a sudden it's like Oz in the distance, I see New York City skyline. I mean, literally, Barbara, the next day I was there. Oh my gosh. Um, and I never looked back. Wow. Well, wait a minute. You mentioned grad school. You told me something. You said to remind me to tell you my big idea that was that happened in grad school. Is that right? Well, yeah. So it's funny. So I moved to New York. I don't know if I ever told you this. I moved to New York to work in advertising. Um, my first job out of college was an ad agency, and I was working in the city, you know, and it was a great job, and it was really fun, and I enjoyed it a lot. And then September 11th happened, and I sort of thought to myself, I think I could be doing more with my life. And I remember one day 
I was on the train going to work and there was an ad and it said, will your spreadsheet remember you in 20 years? And I was like, oh my goodness, no, my spreadsheet's not going to remember me in 20 years. I think I should probably do something better with my life. And I was really lucky. I was, I was, um, I applied to the uh, teaching fellows program in New York and was a teacher. And that was the first time I went to grad school. And again, it was so exciting and wonderful to learn. Um, but the second time is the time when I was like, okay, I've worked in the classroom. I know that we can do better for kids. And I wonder if I can just find a way to communicate. If I can write a book about learning and how everyone can learn, then like, that's what I'm going to do. That's what I'm going to get out of grad school. And I'm so excited. I told my husband and then I get to grad school. And one of the first things that they assigned us was, you know, of course, the beautiful National Academies Press, how people learn. And I'm like, oh, well, they already did that. So I guess I'm good. I can probably, you know, go back to the classroom now. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you had to start all over. You went into cognitive science or? Yeah. So I, when I went to, to get my PhD, it was in cognitive science. Initially, I really, I think I told you, Barbara, I really wanted to go into policy. I figured that, you know, the best way to affect change is to go into the policy side. But then I thought, you know what, and I don't know if I'm the best person to do it, but I certainly think that you can't be in policy if you don't have some understanding of of the foundation of how people learn. And so that's where cognitive science came from. And I found this incredible um, educator at Fordham, uh, Mitch Rabinowitz, who was my mentor. And I did some incredible, like, great work with him and worked in his lab for several years. And that's where the cognitive science came in. You know, all these people you're bringing in is just amazing because I know their names. And to know that you worked with them is pretty amazing. And they're all wonderful, wonderful humans. I mean, truly, these are incredible people that are trying and working really hard to bring about change in education. Um, and so that's super inspiring to me. Well, I'm going to move on to something that I'll come back and ask you about some other things. But I read your article on Medium. In fact, so did thousands and thousands of people read it <laughs> called Human Motivation in the Fourth Industrial Revolution. And it really hit me because I'm actually working on some of the same information on trying to determine what, what is happening to the world and yeah. why we have to change. Tell a little bit about this article, maybe why you wrote that and what it means. Well, it's funny because I don't think I even put it together until right now as we're talking, but I told you before that my big aha in <laughs> going to grad school was if only everyone understood how people learned, then then there would be no limits to, to accessing, you know, great education. And similarly, this whole idea of, well, I understand so much about what motivates people. How can we write about it in a way that's widely accessible? And so I'm now pulling this all together that that's sort of what was what that article was about, right? Yes, um, yes. And and that the audience was not just educators. And for me, like, that was a big wow moment to say, people are really interested in this. People really care about this. You know, it's not the fear-mongering of AI is going to take your job, but more about, you know, what is life going to look like as mm -hmm. technology changes what we do, as our planet changes. Um, and, and that was very empowering. The whole idea is like we know how people learn, and my goal in writing that is to share how people learn, but also maybe to suggest that we need better policy to support what we know to be good learning science um, to be enacted, of course, here in the States, but globally. Well, you you bring up policy, you know, the idea of policy a lot. <laughs> I'm just going to weave this in. Yeah, You're please. actually on a school board. 
<laughs> I am. Right? I am. <laughs> I am. I am. I mean, you can make changes because you, you know, when the hardest part is a teacher doesn't really feel that they can make changes. They don't have the ability, you know, in their position to make policy changes. So, but some of the things you mentioned. But I, I well, I think, you know, you're right. You're, you're absolutely right. And it's really unfortunate and it's really upsetting on a lot of different levels. And also, I think there's also a misunderstanding about what it is to be on a school board. Like, let's address that as well, because school boards are not there to to sort of create curriculum. I mean, they set policy for the district and they hire and fire a superintendent. But, you know, I get folks coming to me all the time saying, why do we have this program? And, you know, I can ask questions about it, but I'm certainly not the person who's ultimately, you know, going to select which program we choose, right? That's not the role of, of the board member. And so I think a lot of it is just communication that, that we struggle with as well. But yeah, being on school board has been interesting. There was this funny thing that happened in 2016. You may have remembered there was an election and it sort of <laughs> inspired us to run. And there were a lot of people that ran that year. I don't think historically they had that many folks run for school board, but it was a, a big group of folks vying for the seats because we all sort of were like, you know what? We got to show up. It's time to show up. Well, you're on there and you're making a difference because you come from a different background than, uh, than the other people that are on the board. You have all this especially with your information about why we need to change. And and like you keep bringing up policy, you do, you can have a say in some of the policies that happen in your district, right? Oh, yeah, of course, of course. And we do, we do. We have lots of, we have lots of say. And in fact, I'm not the only person who's, who's an educator on the board. There are two women, uh, Mary Rose and Heidi. They're both career educators that are both on the board. Um, so it's a really nice perspective of people who, who understand what it is to be in the classroom from K to 12 and also higher ed. That is wonderful. Because, see, I, you know, I never thought of running for the school board in my position, but you're so smart to do this because you're pulling in what you've learned all the background you have as a cognitive science and and also now you're a professor at what is your title over at north northwestern um well i'm definitely a faculty member at northeastern um that's what's currently oh Oh, yeah northeastern well it's funny i actually i did want to go to northwestern as an undergrad but i was not allowed to leave the state of michigan for my um studies but northwestern was certainly a school that i would have loved to have gone to so it's a great school well, they're both wonderful. They're both wonderful. This is true. But I'm just saying that you're making such a difference because now you can uh, work with, you know, you're working with students and teachers and people that are interested in education and where it's going, and you are doing so much. So, okay, you talked about under the human motivation in the fourth industrial revolution, and there's some people don't know what that is, what the fourth industrial revolution. You know, we actually, when I go into talks, I have some people that don't even know what we're talking about. Do you want to mention what that means? Well, sure. It's the idea that the nature of work itself has changed. And with the changing of technologies, right, we are currently in a new way of doing business. And the reason why I connected human motivation to that is because a lot of, you know, I said earlier about the fear mongering of technology is going to take your job. And the reality is that the jobs that we currently have are changing. And so something, you know, I, I 
give talks a bunch and, you know, obviously I work with students all the time. And one of the things I say is, you know, what did you major in when you were in kindergarten? Everybody laughs or looks at me like I have, you know, three heads. And then I say, well, exactly that's the point. We don't know the jobs that are going to exist when the kids in kindergarten today enter the job market. So how are we possibly preparing them with, you know, scripted rote curriculum if we don't even know what they're going to be doing? Um, and so the point of that is to say, but if we know what motivates humans to learn, that they feel like there's a sense of purpose in what they're working towards, you know, um, you've heard me talk a lot about the self-determination theory, um, which is the competence, autonomy, and relatedness. If, if you feel like you have competence in understanding concepts and that in enacting your knowledge, you, you have a sense of autonomy, that you have a choice in how you do it or a voice in how you do it, and that in using your voice and your choice to show your competence, you connect to other people like we connect, Barbara, that's the relatedness that's sort of like this trifecta of what it means to be, you know, motivated and feeling purposeful in your work. And so it's not, again, you know, you talk about what is the future of work. Well, let's look at what is, what is the nature of humans and how can we support what makes us uniquely human, you know, so that we can continue to thrive in whatever the future looks like. That's really deep. <laughs> I'm thinking of people who, you know, they're even talking like, what are you going to do if people don't work in the coal mines anymore? And I saw um, there was, I don't know if it was in Virginia or where it was, they were teaching them to be beekeepers. Mm. I mean, think about the opportunities if we can just explore what types of skills and dis dispositions that we need for the future, but also what are our own talents because everybody is unique and has those gifts if we just explore them. They don't have to be one thing their whole life and find that they're dependent on, a, on an industry that's no longer there. It's, a, it's a kind of exciting. Yeah. I mean, I'm hearing you say this. And one of the things that drew me to Northeastern as a university for work is that they have this really interesting arm called Next, which is the experiential network. And they work with folks across the country, in fact, across the globe, about um, around experiential learning, which is doing learning, right? Like active learning. Um, and it looks different in a lot of different spaces. I, a couple of pieces I had shared with you, there was um, one of the organizations is called One Stone. I had written a piece about them for getting smart. But the idea is that learning doesn't happen because you're not in a classroom anymore. And so when you talk about what are the skills people are going to need, I mean, we're looking at upskilling people. So, you know, that's the, that's the label, right? Like how do we upskill people so that they're prepared for the careers of the future? A colleague of mine, uh, Melissa Ristoff, has a company called Courageous out in Colorado, and that's what they're doing. They're trying to figure out ways to upskill individuals so that they can meet the needs of, of you know, these STEM careers that are, are needing um, employees. So, I think you hit the nail on the head, and there's a lot of opportunity, but it goes back to policy. Who's going to fund these initiatives, and how are we going to get, you know, kids access to the things that they're interested in? You wrote another article, just came out, When Next Is Now, that you gave a lot of examples. Yes. You know, I love that you have all these places where you write. I, I, you know, I sometimes Google you, and they go, oh, there's another article. Oh, oh there's you. another one. Well, this one hit me because you put in a lot of examples of how different districts and schools are changing. It is happening, right? It is. And so, so again, like the Northeastern bit, the, the next was the events that happened at Northeastern, and it happened just this past summer. And 
there were representatives from schools across the country, and they were public schools and they were private schools, and they were K to 12. I mean, it was not just secondary ed. It was all of, all of you know, different ages doing expeditionary learning or experiential learning or design thinking. The Charlotte Lab School was there, and there was this incredible teacher. Um, I, I believe her name was Miss Greer, and I wrote about her in the article, and she does these quests with her students. And she teaches in, in, you know, I believe uh, third grade, I want to say. And she has her students doing quests and not just for the purpose of a quest, but but real, true, deep, meaningful, impactful learning. Um, And so, yes, it's happening. And again, I really don't like this narrative that we have to break the system. I think that there are so many teachers that are already doing really great things. They just need the support and they need the rest of us to open our eyes to see that it's there if we would support them. Oh, you know how I feel. Tell me, tell <laughs> That's me, Barbara. exactly why I'm doing what I'm doing. <laughs> That's why we found each other. In fact, okay, I'm going to go back to something that happened is I got to know you better on Twitter. That's right. And we kept talking on, on direct messaging and you said, oh, Barbara, you have to go to the Intentional Play Conference. That's right. right? That's right. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> you have to. It's right down the street. So I did. And you came. And, um, you showed up. How cool is that? I, yeah. I was so excited. I like it remember I hugged you cool. for like 20 minutes. <laughs> You're real. <laughs> no, it was longer than that. It was longer than that. <gasps> but it was worth every minute just to be there with you. And and the coolest thing was that you did a keynote there. I'm like, what? I mean, you did a, you know, you did one of your talks. And that's when I went, okay, I need to know more about play. And you did a whole bunch on experiential learning through games. And you were also part of Killer Snails. Is that the name? That's the name of the company, right? Yes, yes. So I co-founded a company. Thank you for bringing that up. So I co-founded a company with this incredible science educator, Mandy Holford, and an educator MBA, Jessica Ochoa Hendricks, who's our CEO. And it is an immersive learning game company where we take science out of the lab and we put it into the hands of learners across the globe. I mean, from kids at the dining room table um, to classrooms. So yes, that was that was also, that was part of why I was there, to give a, a talk about what I call Bugatti in the brain, which is the science of, of you know, learning. See, that's another one we could talk about, brain-based learning and everything. And I got to play with some of the killer snails. Absolutely. Act, you know, activities and, uh, yeah, they're really great. Oh, you did so, it. Yeah. You know, what we should do is we'll put links to everything in the post that we put together. That would be great. With this podcast and share what they're doing there because, you know, game games are, you know, play is really, really important. And for me, just being at that conference, which with you and listening to some of the things and listening to people laugh and, and really get to know each other, even though they didn't know each other. It's something we really need to bring back in all of the learning environments, wherever we are. And that's when you said experiential, expeditionary, all of those really matter. And so that's why it's really good that you brought up those examples. Well, there is a school right by you, Barbara, also that you should see if you can go visit. It's the Tahoe Expeditionary Academy, and they are doing incredible work. I wrote about Ken Martin, um, who's the director there, also in the When Next Is Now article. And um, their their kids go on. Um, I think they're called. Oh, I'm, forgive me if I don't say this correctly, but it's it's um, intensive. And one of the ones that he gave as an example in the conference that I wrote about was 
the two sides of, of uranium, um, on the one side saying that it's detrimental to the environment and the other saying, no, in fact, it's providing a livelihood for the folks that are working in the mills. And getting the kids out of the classroom and having groups of kids go and experience firsthand and then solving and trying to, like, you know, jive their, their thoughts, their feelings and experiences over a campfire I mean, you talk about learning or learning through games. Why is it powerful? You're taking away the high stakes nature of traditional learning. It's low stakes. You are engaging with other people. I mean, sure, if you're playing a, a, a true game, there is ultimately a winner. Um, but you're engaging with someone. Like you're 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 spending time. You're interacting with another human, and that I think is super powerful. Well, I mean, the the thing that you're bringing up is is learning is experiential and it is personal and we i I definitely go check this one out because i i I read about it but i didn't realize it was right in my backyard i mean there's so much everywhere we just need to really explore and then share these stories with everyone and that's that's why i want to talk about design thinking yeah but i figured maybe we should talk about it about your book sure yeah because that there's so much in there that you're you're bringing in designing for learning because I love design thinking anyway. I think it's amazing. I mean, and it's so funny. So one of, a, a colleague of mine the other day said, Lindsay, why are you writing a book about design thinking? This is not new. And I said, well, no, it's not new. But the way that we're applying it is different. And the way that we're making it relevant to educators to use in the classroom is certainly different. And there's always an opportunity to explain something in a way that is maybe more relevant or more timely, right? Um, and so I, what I tried to do here, and, you know, and I think it's also part of the other writing, is how can I explain, um, you know, the process of, of, you know, understanding for empathy, right? How can I break that down so we, again, can break through what I would say are, are sort of silos of learning right now, right? The way that traditional learning looks is very siloed. And so what design thinking does is it, it makes you focus on how interdisciplinary um, problems are and how interdisciplinary learning is. And so really by understanding the people that are affected by a particular problem or even how you could apply your content to solve a problem in your community, it empowers students to feel like they have a sense of agency and they have choice in their life. Um, and I think, you know, I've seen it firsthand transform classrooms. To me, that's why this needed to be written right now. And you said it before, Barbara, and I think it's so powerful that it bears repeating, but we don't just learn in the classroom and learning is not just something that happens, you know, in our brain to acquire knowledge. We're not like packing suitcases with content. You know, we're, we're social, emotional people. We're beings, right? We are physical beings, right? We need the connection with others. And part of this process is how can we help kids? And in every chapter I talk about Where's the self-regulated learning questions that you can ask? Where's the metacognition that you can ask? And, and then I get into the epistemology, which what is the nature of knowledge and knowing and how has your experience with this content actually qualitatively shifted the way that you think about this knowledge and, and how it is or is not relevant to your life? I can't wait to get my hands on it. <laughs> because, I mean... I've sent, I've sent you some of this... You already shared some. I, I shared a couple of things because, of course, I, I had to mention my incredible uh, thought partner and guru, Barbara, in it as well. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, so, um, and I can't wait. It'll be out soon. This is where I bring in accountability and responsibility. The issue for teachers is they feel so accountable for what the kids learn. 
And I think it was Alan November who said, who owns the learning, mm-hmm. right? The kids own the learning and they're the ones who should be responsible and accountable for it. But we don't, because of the way the system is set up, we don't provide those opportunities to let go so, or, or even give them. But we can. Yeah, but you found some and you, of course we can. Yeah. And that's the thing is so, okay. So when I was teaching, I was a professor at Hunter College for a little while and I was teaching a lot of classes on assessment and it was, you know, right when formative assessment was getting big and baked into formative assessment are opportunities for students to do self-assessment and peer assessment. And so thank you for bringing it back again. In every chapter of the book, and I go through each of the elements of design thinking, but in each chapter and each element, it's not just what questions the teacher might ask the student to engage them in all of this higher order thinking and to make them, you know, and to, and to help them be cognizant of their social emotional knowledge, but also how can they assess their own learning? How can they assess the learning of their peers? And then in doing that, you're really taking a tremendous weight off the teacher right? Because then, then the student is, is, is really being autonomous. They're really learning how to do, I'm doing air quotes, learning, right? But teachers are, that first step is hard because they only know what they know. They only know what they were taught in teacher ed and also as students themselves. And so the whole idea is giving them, you know, the being able to give them your book and give them some ideas and be able to to provide opportunities for them to experiment and explore and be okay if it doesn't work too, because they need to know that's how we learn. That's what design thinking is all about too, is you're, you know, making uh, your ideate, you're coming up with new ideas and then sometimes those don't work. So you try again. That's the whole idea about changing this way of thinking. Yeah, I mean, even asking, you know, why did your idea not work or why did it not solve the problem, you know, gets at even deeper learning. And and frankly, I'm looking right now because I, I there's a flowchart that I have at the end of the book, which is probably one of my favorite parts because I'm I'm I like to look at things visually. It helps me sort of see where I am in in a process. But the types of questions that students are asking, you know, was the design you selected feasible in solving this problem? And depending on their answer, circling them back, you talked about the iterative nature of learning, giving them, again, handing over the learning and being the guide on the side and not the sage on the stage, that's where magic happens. That's where kids say, you know what, if only I had tried this, or maybe maybe I chose a symptom, but not the root cause of my problem. And so we're giving them all of the tools, just like we're giving educators, we're giving all of us all of the tools that we need to be successful. And then we're standing back and we're letting children soar because they can. Isn't that wonderful? And I've seen it. I've seen it even in kindergarten. Absolutely. I've seen it at Reggio, Montessori. I've seen it all over. But I've seen it in public schools where some teachers are taking risks. And I've seen it where places where they do co-teaching models, multidiscipline. And I mean, you know, to me, I see that it's starting to happen. It is starting to happen. We see it on Twitter. I know that, you know, you and I are very active on Twitter and, and we see so many incredible public school educators across, you know, the K to 12 spectrum doing this sort of work. And so that's when I say it's policy related, you know, teachers are doing the work. Teachers know how kids learn. There are so many incredible educators out there, right? That if we give them tools and if we give them the space 
you know, again, you said something else earlier that I want to keep bringing up because my goodness, learning is making mistakes and having to try stuff over again. I don't even like saying the world's word failure because it just, it seems so, so finite and it's not, that's learning. I mean, fear, fear of failure is big, but the whole thing is, is I, I always tell teachers, be vulnerable, show the kids that you've made mistakes and how you went through the process to learn. And I think that if we can be human, just show we're human too. And we have our stories, we have our issues and build those relationships right in the beginning of the school year. I, I, you know, those are the things that happen. Like you remember now the person and the teacher that made a difference in your life. And you want to, you want to be as that teacher, the one that makes a difference. Yeah. in that those children's lives. I know it. Everybody wants to. So definitely going to get links to your book because I can't wait. I, I, oh, just, I, I know you even have a cover, right? I do. I can even share it with you. It's so beautiful. I can't, Barbara, I can't believe that it's real. It is so beautiful. And they did such a great job. I'm really grateful for ASCD. Um, it was really like the perfect home for this book. Um, and, and the editor that I worked with was so kind and generous. It really has been such a great experience. I feel really honored. Oh, well, we'll put, we'll put her name. We'll put everything. Cause you just mentioned and, and put a link to it. <laughs> Thank you. So you have a lovely family who must be supporting you because, you know, believing in you too, because, um, to be on a school board, do all the things you're doing. Um, they, you know, I, I've heard you talk about your family. Do you want to just mention who they are and I would love to. You know, I would love to. Yeah. So my partner in crime is Gary. And um, it's so funny. So he works in, in IT security. And you wouldn't think that we'd have a lot um, of commonalities in like what we do for a living. But cognitive science and security, oh, my goodness, the neural network stuff, all of the AI, we talk big data. Um, so it's, I mean, he's he's really fun to sort of riff off of. And then I have these two delicious and and silly boys judah and levi i have a rising sixth grader and a fourth grader so we're starting middle school please help me <laughs> please send all support <laughs> yeah i lo- i taught sixth grade i love that grade i love the oh, i love the age and everything <laughs> yeah no no they that's when they need the most support i think so i we're going to pull this together with one big question your why uh my why, my why, oh, Barbara, my why is a work in progress. I mean, that's the truth. Um, I wrote Designs to Learn because I think that I think that the process is so much more important than the product. I really do. I think how we go through life is constantly iterative and, and changing. Um, you know, it's so funny. You know, my, my goal in life is to learn and to share and to elevate others. And, and knowing better, doing better. And I, I know I've shared that with you before, and this might sound really silly, but it's true. I believe that there really are no such things as strangers. They're people that we haven't met yet. And I sort of extrapolate that to say that, you know, to my kids or my students or the teachers that I'm working with, that there's no magic in learning. It's content that you haven't learned yet. You can do, you can be, you can learn anything. It's a matter of interest, and it's a matter of access. And when we start talking about access, we always come back to equity. And if we really want to address equity, we need to start talking about policy. So full circle. Oh my goodness. You brought that all back together. You know, I, I, this whole idea of policy, you and I are going to have to talk some more about that another yes, time, please. because this is, 
big. It's big. And it's all about our kids. And I'm Cannot wait to meet your family someday. <laughs> I can't wait for you to meet <laughs> That's them. That's going to happen. <laughs> They're hilarious. Uh, they sound, I mean, it's very funny. Yeah, you've told me many stories. And I just think this has been the most wonderful conversation. I've learned a lot about you that I didn't know. So that's kind of fun. Oh, thank you, Barbara. Thank you for, for bringing me on and, and for sharing your time and for, you know, just sharing your space with me. I really appreciate it. Oh, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much. This is like, I want to give you a big hug. I know, I know. <laughs> a virtual hug. Thank you. Because I've Thank always you. wanted, I've been wanting you to, you know, share your story. And I'm so, so excited that we had this time to talk. So thank you, Lindsay. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Rethinking Learning Podcast and my conversation with Dr. Lindsay Portnoy make sure you check out the complimentary blog post about Lindsay and her awesome story along with resources and links. Please subscribe to the podcast. We welcome your review and to share out the post with the podcast. And you can also subscribe to my website, barbarabray.net, to receive announcements and updates so you don't miss any of the conversations.